Hello and welcome to Conversations from the ANF podcast. In this episode, I speak to Anthony about his experiences as a child entering the care system and his journey through foster care, residential care and semi-independence. He's really honest in terms of his responses to his lived experience and the help he received at various times. Anthony now campaigns for Revolving Door to improve youth justice and police responses to young people. As always, if you've experience of adoption, fostering or special guardianship from any perspective, personal or professional, and would like to share that on the podcast, please get in touch through the Facebook page or Twitter, or you can email us at anfpodcast at gmail.com. Oh, well, good morning. I'm Anthony Aganjobi. I'm 27. Um, I sit on some care leave in panels and criminal justice panels uh, and give my experience as a lived experience team member. I've been doing this for about three years. Um, I also have over 20 years of uh, experience of being in care from foster care, semi-independence, to fully independent living via uh, private um, care homes and normal care homes as well. And and yeah, here I am today, this morning. Thank you. Well, it's it's lovely to meet you. And um, I mean, it sounds from what you've, ex- even just that short introduction, you've got a really interesting story. Maybe interesting is the wrong word, but you've got a, a story that encompasses all kinds of stuff. So if you're comfortable, are you happy? Would you be able to share some of that story, maybe? your journey into care and through care? Yeah, well, I, I came into care um, at the age of six. Um, that was due to uh, my mum not being able to look after me uh, due to uh, my father passing away and serious uh, drug habits, which uh, got me taken under the Children's Act uh, 1989. And my journey in care started in, I think it was June 2002. Uh, which was quite a long time ago, back in the noughties. Um, and yeah, uh, I was put into care temporarily, foster care temporarily with both my siblings. And it, it was a journey that started from there that I, I would say shaped my life for the better. Hmm. Um, I mean, that's that sounds in of itself like a really complicated story for a six-year-old. Um so do you have many memories of those events? Do you can you kind of can you yeah, recall? Um funny enough, uh, I remember my mum saying, um, put on uh, my mum putting on our best clothes and stuff. And she took us down to Wembley, uh, where the old social services was by Wembley Triangle. And she it, it must have been a heartbreaking moment for her, but I didn't understand as a six-year-old what was really going on. Uh we were basically left outside the building and my fondest memory uh, I will always remember was me chasing my mum's cab as she ran back into her cab to leave us outside the building. So quite, it was quite traumatising because I think I was crying for about 45 minutes, lost, bewildered. Uh, my head was spinning. I, I didn't really know as a young child what was really going on, but I can tell you for, what, for sure that I was definitely upset. Yeah, and it- I remember my fondest memory of being picked up by my social worker, well, who was obviously appointed on the case, Nancy, uh, picking picking me up and consoling me, telling me that uh, eventually one day that my mum will come back. But you know that that that's what really toughens up young children from such a young age. Yeah, I mean, it sounds pretty 
like you say, a life altering. Um, yeah, a world, a world turned upside down. And you, you mentioned you were with your siblings. So were you, where do you, are they older, younger, or? I'm the youngest boy, um, but I'm not the youngest child. I do have a younger sister. Um, I have two older brothers as well. And so they were with you. So did they know what was, I mean, did they get an idea of this, this was going to happen? Um, at this moment, my youngest sister wasn't born yet. She was due in right. September or two. So we were taken in uh, care at, at June and she was born in September. So we, I didn't even know my mum was pregnant at the time. I just remember turning up to the hospital a couple months after being in care uh, with the foster care and seeing my little sister for the first time. Um, my oldest brother knew what was going on because he's six years older than me. So he was 12 and the other right. one is two years older than me. So he was eight at the time. So they, them two had a better of understanding of what was going on than my young child brain, which was obviously yeah. just thinking about cartoons and, and you know, uh, crayons and, <laughs> you know, Thomas the Tank Engine and, and other things at the time. Yeah. Um, so can you, um, can you sort of then describe your, were you put together into a foster care situation? Were you the three, your three, your, the three children, were, they, were you put together? Or, yes. And yeah. then eventually my older brother got moved on and uh, it was me and my brother for about, I think, five, six years until my behaviour deteriorated. Right. And um, I had to get moved on because I was causing the foster carer a lot of problems by getting suspended from school due to my behaviour and not seeing my mother. Obviously, a mum and son's bond is very strong. Mm. But... It was, it, I think it was due to a, a lot of factors. Me, uh, obviously, not understanding the care system and not understanding that I won't be going back home to my mum. And obviously, me thinking that my little sister has taken my place as the youngest child uh, and having uh, my mum's attention and stuff. There was a lot of factors behind why I think my behaviour deteriorated. And plus, I wasn't allowed out with my friends. I wasn't allowed to, uh, like, as I was getting, uh, this is as I was getting older. So I, was, I think I was about 13, 12, yeah. 13. And that's when um, I started to come into contact with uh, the police as a, a young teenager, preteen. Um, even though I was raised in the church, I didn't really have faith in God and stuff as obviously my life got turned upside down. Uh, every son would say when they're split up from their family that if they're away from their mum or father, I didn't really have a father figure because uh, most of the placements that I, I actually went to were uh, female predominated. So there wasn't really a man in the household to actually guide me through certain things that a son would need if you get what I'm yeah. saying, it was more yeah. nurturing than the actual, the other side where a father can actually sit down and be stern. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like, a. I mean, you've summarised an awful lot of stuff there really quickly. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and, um, and it sounds like a really complicated journey for this little six-year-old boy um, who's trying to make sense of his world. And did you... And obviously you said that the social worker said, oh, you're going to go back to your mum, but that just didn't happen, did it? Was that, that was ever... a lie. All right. So, yeah, I mean, they weren't being optimistic. It was just not going to happen. Yeah, um, under the conditions that we were taking, and if you saw those conditions, you would have said, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, the, the conditions that we were living in before we were taken, I can give you an early insight of a story. This is when the police knew that they had to take us. We, we kept coming to school and uh, we very raggedy if you know what i mean yeah 
like very malnourished. Um, like, like I kept eating other kids' school school lunches and stuff. Uh, I wasn't concentrating in class. I had uh, rotten teeth. I wasn't in the best of uh, uh, physical conditions for a typical six-year-old, if you know. Yeah. If you yeah, and uh, the police kept raiding the house for drugs. So yeah, the the house kept getting kicked off, and I, there's a, a a unique moment that I'll never forget when I was behind the door, and what you call it, um, the police used the battering ram, and I got caught in between the door and the wall, and I got hit by the door with full force, and that's when they knew, yeah, these children are not safe within my mum's custody, yeah. and yeah, she had to give us up. I mean, it sounds like for a six-year-old, just, a, I mean, I guess it was normal, but it must have been just living day by day, normal. hour by hour. Yeah. yeah, to me it was normal, living in the dark, um, seeing drugs, paraphernalia, certain things that six-year-olds shouldn't be seeing. So I was seeing a lot of crack, a lot of heroin, um, a lot of domestic violence, a lot of serious violence. I've seen, uh, and as a six-year-old, I thought that was normal to act on my peers if I didn't get my way. So you kind of link the dots together and you yeah. would see as a preteen that if a father figure was uh, invalid within this young person's life, this person could have ended up doing or committing a homicide or committing a serious offence which will warrant jail time. Yeah, and it and makes total sense of the 13 year old who's then because that's a difficult time for every, any child and like you said that's that, the most key one of the most key moments or stages in 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 your life and i believe that as the 13 year old i think i committed so many robberies at that point the judge was getting fed up of me and gave me a four four year asbo from uh london and I had to serve the four year as boy in Kent and Essex. So I was sent to a private care school in, uh, I think it was Stanet in, in Kent. And um, that gave me another chapter of development where I would say that um, it was very tough. I, was, I would call it a Tracy Beaker home. So the Tracy yeah. Beaker home is a 26-bedroom house where kids from southeast, northwest, north, east, you, you, you name it, and the borough is in that house, basically. But also, it was also very difficult because my mum was also issued travel warrants. I'm pretty sure you know what the travel warrants are for when they're issued to the parents. But my mum kept refunding them for... Drugs, not every single time, but the majority of the time she wouldn't turn up. And that really got me heartless, you know, very angry mm. and stuff. So, yeah. So, I mean, professionals looking in, I mean, they, I mean, I guess there's a stereotype. You're a young black boy and that's a really easy stereotype to pin on you, isn't it? You know, he's just a kid who's gone wrong. He's this. And were you aware of that? And But underneath all of that, there's this really... There's this awful kind of experiences, these this these terrible experiences that were just kind of going on. And even they talk about your mum and how she, you know, that must have been heartbreaking for you. But then that then plays out in how you behave. Does it? Yeah, it was very heartbreaking. Uh, I have to admit, but as a teenager, like I wasn't really uh, engaged in how I was feeling. I was just acting out, if you know what I mean. Yeah. 
because obviously I didn't know what love or what uh, uh, emotions were. I, I just knew violence. If you knew, if you knew what I mean, like if you're from a violent place, all you're gonna know is violence. That's the only emotion that you're really gonna be set out to be doing. And unfortunately, I think when I got a teeny bit older, as I was moving to more towards semi-independence, I started to understand my own feelings. Right. Because it's either you grow up or you feel sorry for yourself and there's not really time to feel sorry for yourself, especially as um, as you did say, the demographics of being a young black boy, the emotions behind it, not every single person gets to be one with their emotions, but Hmm. I think the police actually saved me from myself. Right. Why Why do you say that? Because if I didn't get that ASBO, I think I would have been in prison for a very long time for some very... Because it was either I had the ASBO or was, I was going to Felton. Right. And to be honest, I, I don't think I was built for Joel. I thought I was some sort of young bad man, as they would call yeah. it. But not every single person who thinks they're bad. There's more intelligent criminals than dumb criminals, if you know what I mean, at that time. And yeah. I thought uh, I, I was a, a a bad man. And I wasn't yeah. a bad man. I was just acting out, which is a, a whole lot different. And I think the police understood the assignment there by handing out an ASBO and uh, uh, basically a uh, behaviour order um, banning me from, if I'm spotted in London, I could be arrested immediately on impact, basically. As soon as I enter London, it would have been curtains for me. I mean, that sounds like a things really serious for you as, a, as an adolescent. Were you getting any um, sort of therapeutic support, any counselling, therapy, or was it, just you sort of like you said in this Tracy Beaker home down in Kent. Well, in it when I when I went into foster care with my brother, I couldn't speak until I was about six. So because I wasn't going to school properly with my mother, so yeah. I couldn't really speak. So I had a speech impediment and I was very mute. And I went to something called CAMS as a child. Yeah. Now, um, after going to camps and stuff, uh, I think my behaviour did improve. But when I left London, my behaviour deteriorated for a bit because I was left lonely every time that my brother would um, come up and visit. It would feel like uh, an eternity before he comes back again and yeah. stuff. And my brother was going through stuff himself. So it was quite a difficult period in my life, I must admit. So you... You say you, I mean, this. It's, you sound like a you, you're, it's a remarkable story. You're a remarkable young man, and um, and like you say, the police moving you out of London kind of managed to stop this behaviour. And so, you then talked about moving into semi-independence. So, could you explain what semi-independence is for people who maybe don't know what it is? And what was it like? For semi, for those who don't understand what semi-independence is, when you are um, transitioning from, I think, the ages of, uh, it would be 16 to 18 or 16 to 20, depending on what uh, what your local borough de de declares. Or, But for, for my instance, semi-independence is a place where they monitor you to see just before you move into your own place that if you have the skills and basics to actually be able to cope by living by yourself the mechanisms to actually survive yeah and what and was that like, like? The... sorry sorry 
what what was what was that what was that like? I, sh- I shouldn't have interrupted you. Sorry. <laughs> uh, semi independence was uh, the wild wild west. Basically, I had my semi independence in Essex, so it was one of those where um, where there was a lot of drug taking partaking in the house. So people were smoking weed. Some people were smoking crack. Uh, I was the youngest in that house. Um, and it's run by a private company. Now, when things are run by private companies, not really much auditing is done. So people are getting away with things that they shouldn't really be getting away with. And luckily enough for me, I actually had some very friendly people in my semi-independence. I don't think people always get the lucky end of the brunch like me. But yeah, I actually transitioned very smoothly through my semi-independence. Yeah, I did have a few hiccups where I came home late and stuff. But, you know, that's that's what happens when you have a teenager. We're rowdy. We always want to think that we're right. Uh, obviously, we always want to be on the graft, making sure that we, we can't really get a job at that time because, obviously, you know, minimum wage and, and stuff. And, obviously, we're not going to be staying in the area for too long. But, yeah, I would say that semi-independence is another thing that really shaped my life and the way that I behave and the way that I have a mentality towards other beings. Because mm. it, when you saw, you told the story of this young this young man who was thirteen, fourteen, the Asbo, it seems like there was potential to go down a really bad route. Was that tempting then when you went into sort of semi independence? Was there still because had the was the Asbo finished by then? Was it not? How did you sort of it was, resist it was those coming temptations? To its closing verges, the Asbo, right. but uh, it was one of those things where I did get a, a visit from the police, and they did tell me if you do return back to the borough, which you will be when you're moving back, because m- my home is Brent. Yeah, like I am, I'm born and bred in this borough, and I don't want to live anywhere else outside of the borough because this is what I know. If you know, I'm, yeah. most yeah. of my social circle was down here at the time included my mother, my brothers and stuff. So it would be difficult for me to start a new life, even though I've basically lived most of my life out of a suitcase. Yeah. And so you, you managed to resist those temptations. And then did the did the local authority help you find like independent accommodation? Because obviously you were in a home and then the big step into the big wide world when you, you turn 18. What, what's, what's that like as a young man? I didn't get experience. my first home at 18. I got right. my first home at 17 and three quarters. Right. And that is another story in itself. Uh, the first couple of months were fine until uh, a gang um, were on the block and I got cuckooed. And as yeah. a 17 and three quarter year old, you don't really know much. So you're thinking, yeah, I'm having a house party. These lot will most probably leave, but they, they wouldn't leave. And sorry about that. They would eventually um try to uh cause some serious harm to me because I, I, I started to refuse to let them in and stuff. I started hiding from them and all of that, and they thought that I was uh basically disrespecting them and stuff. Yeah. And eventually it would lead to them chasing me uh, halfway down the road with a samurai sword and me diving headfirst into a police car. Um Crikey. Which, which that was the end of my first property. But I, I do admit um, that the, the borough did make a mistake by moving me less than 500 metres away from my childhood home. So when I did return back to the borough, they, they basically messed up. 
by moving me back to the same area where I basically grew up on. Yeah. And it was strictly instructed that I was to never return to that part of the borough. So on their behalf, they had to move me back to my brothers temporarily and then back onto the uh, nicer part of the borough. There's always two sides to a borough. There's the rough side and there's the rich side. And now, fortunately, I live on the rich side of the borough. I don't live on the poor side anymore. Right. It sounds like a, I mean, you, you now you're 27, so that's what, 10 years ago now. So, yeah. Um, what, where were you in terms of your education and college? Was that, had that stuff sort of got back on track or were you, where were, what I was were you in doing? college. I did pass courses. Yeah. I did pass my courses at college. I, I did, I think it was, um, uh, B-Tech Sports Science. I think, uh, I've got some of the certificates somewhere around in the flat, but I was in some sort of education. I also did, uh, um, football coaching, and stuff and I think I did maths and English because I didn't leave school with GCSEs I was a very violent person in secondary school any sort of uh, disrespect and it could lead to what police would classify as an adult now as grievous bodily harm because I used to um, headbutt people that was a very speciality of mine Um, something that I'm not proud of but until I saw blood I would not leave that person alone when I was younger and I thought that was the right way forward but my brothers told me that a hothead would would always lead to a burnt hand that's a great phrase um and so so you'd managed to maintain links with your brothers because obviously you you'd been moved out when you were was it 13 14 sort of age yeah um so did they uh, what sort of contact did you have with them um, it was phone contact because um, I didn't really, my brothers, the contact that, that we got was very scheduled. It was rigorous, rigorously scheduled. So sometimes I would see them and sometimes it, it would be uh, because my brother was studying at university as well, I think at this time. So uh, it would be here and there, if you know what I mean. The oldest mm. one, he, he would come when he could but the relationship between me and him is like we do see each other in person and there's no animosity now if you know what i mean like i don't blame him obviously he's going through his own things and me i'm going through my own things so yeah it i mean it sounds like i think you've been you've probably been quite um you're naturally quite um not cautious i'm trying to think of the word you're you're not trying to big up your misbehavior at all, which is, you know, because clearly, like you say, you're not particularly pleased looking back and reflecting on it. But it sounds like if I was to have talked to the 13 or 14 or 15 year old you, you sound like quite a character. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot going on, you know, in terms of your life and your behavior. And, but I'm talking to you now, what, you know, you then move, you've, you've moved into independence. What, what's made the difference? You know, how do we get from, 10 years ago, we've got this young man who sounds like, yeah, really quite vulnerable. I would say when I was 19, 20, uh, I had my first child, um, but I was fighting a grievous bodily harm charge as well. Right. And the thing that made me put stop put an end to all this violence was, I would say, 
when the judge asked me for my character reference and I was stuck and tagged for over 100 days, I asked myself, is this really worth it? Is this the life that I want to live? Does my daughter want to have to visit her dad in prison and stuff? And when the judge asked me, do I have a child? And he realized that I was in care. He immediately understood the assignment. And he was like, yeah, I don't think you don't have previous as an adult. Your child uh, record does look tainted. But it's not the tainted where it warrants to actually go to prison. It's the tainted where he actually does need mental health help, probation help. And the borough actually needs to start looking at their young people and seeing what their young people are actually getting up to. And and if there could be a diversion point. And I think my daughter was that actual diversion point, along with my social worker who did write a brilliant character reference for the courts that day. And I do thank her to this day, which me and my old social worker still maintain our, our friendship or relationship, as you may say. Mm. And I'm very proud of that for not going to prison because I think if I went to prison, I most probably would have been in a revolving door of crisis, basically. Mm. It sounds like a real moment in your life where you know there's a before and after sort of thing. The, the young person you were before that and then this moment where you've You've, like you say, people understood the assignment that they they saw you and they just managed to point you in a different direction. Um, yeah. So that sounds like a re- kind of is not what I was expecting to be honest with you. Um, I wasn't expecting to hear that the police and the judges have done a good job. I was, it's not necessarily what we hear, is it? It's true, but it's true. Um. So, um. The person who got in touch with me and sort of and re- referred and kind of recommended that you you tell your story yeah. sort of mentioned that you now campaign in terms of you know your experience and trying to bring about change to the system. So can you tell me a bit about that? Why did you sort of how how and why did you get involved in campaigning, and what what are the messages you're trying to get out there? Why did I get started with the campaigning? I, there was a, I was in, not invited. I think I was referred to the service and I started to see that there was a, a, a repeating factor of people. There's, this, there's a very strong link with, between people who are in care, getting suspended from school, falling into gangs, then going to jail. Mm. And I don't think that the care system was actually doing enough because if you actually look at, let me give you an example, county lines, for example, you see it in the news that a person, young person, age 15, has been arrested for, and then all you hear is modern slavery. If you actually look at the care system, the care system is a business. Now, if you see the people that are trying to exploit the care system, these are people that are, who have been exploited themselves. And the people that are most vulnerable when they're not with their parents are people who come from the care system. And I think that they need a voice to to actually be heard. And the police need to actually know that some of these young people don't want drug deal. They are forced to drug deal or they're forced or threatened with severe Mm. violence. And from a person who comes from a very similar background to that, I believe that my experience and my expertise could actually be a starting point to actually pave a way for these young people to actually see the light. Yeah. Cause there was an interesting case recently, wasn't there in, I think it was in Wales where, um, the, a young person, like a 15 year old young person had been found. They were involved in County Lions. The, the police found them, but then they prosecuted the adults 
um, as yeah. for, for child abuse, uh, which I thought was just spot on. Because actually, this kid, this it's a fifteen-year-old. They're being, they're being exploited. Like, yeah, yeah. And um, so, tell me what you do then. So, do you who do you talk to, and what you know? Who who is there? Any organisations that you're involved with? Yeah, um, revolving doors. Um, if you've heard of them, I think revolving so, yeah. doors. Yeah. yeah, I do a lot of campaigning for revolving doors, and um, I've been there for since lockdown. So I've been there for about three years now. And I believe that um, there's a start in this. Police are starting to actually understand uh, where these young people are coming from and stuff. And what messages are you? I mean, when you are talking to the police and you're talking to professionals, are they receptive to your um, to your, what you've astounded. got to say? They're astounded. They're actually very, very humble, and they're actually listening. They're not. Uh, where, where they're not ha- like a couple of years ago where they would be like, no, that's not happening. No, that's not happening. They're not in denial. They understand that there's certain things that are happening, but they need to basically, they're, they're having more of an open mind as things are going on throughout the years now. And I would say that um, they're more open to advice than than speaking, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. They're, instead of talking over the person, they're more ears than actually talking. And they're starting to take note and they're starting to understand the roots of the problem, where things are actually going wrong, how they can help the young people and where where they can actually offer the right support and services. That's, I mean, that sounds fantastic. And have you got plans for the future? Have you got, is there more work coming up? Is or, or maybe uh, funny way of, enough, Yeah. I'm in Manchester today. Uh, today. So, uh, Tomorrow, I'm most probably going to be with the police commissioner, um, having a conversation about the same thing that we're we're actually speaking about, and how uh, change and reform could actually be implemented on young people's lives. I mean, are you optimistic that we're going to see change? Of course, I'm optimistic. You know, you can't <laughs> always think negatively about the police. I know there's a negative stereotype. We do understand that the police have their own problems. No service is yeah. perfect. But if there's uh, missing uh, uh, pieces to the puzzle, I guess that sometimes when you speak, some of those uh, pieces could actually get filled in. Mm. And I guess your experience, you've got a positive message about the police as well in the midst of all that, haven't you? Because you, I know when I talk to different professionals, you if you just come and sort of hit people down all the time, then but you've yeah. got this message of actually there was professionals who who looked and understood and made decisions that had a, such a positive impact on your life. Yeah. Um, Michael, it's been fantastic to speak to you. I really appreciate um, you giving your time. What we'll do is we'll put we'll put the links in the show notes to Revolving Doors so people can kind of find out a bit more about the work that you do. And um, um, it's been wonderful to talk to you. So thank you so much for your time and we hope that we kind of your message gets out there and that people start to listen. Sure, no problem. Thank you so much for your time as well.